is waiting for our daughter to get her headphones on. Welcome to the family on the Tom Bernard Podcast with Alex Bernard Rasmussen, co-host Catherine Brandt, and Andy Brandt Bernard. We'll be right back. Douglas Century promoting the last boss of Brighton, Boris Biba Neufeld, and the rise of the Russian mob in America. That's all we need is more mobsters in America. That'd be wonderful. Douglas Century, our very special guest, up next with the family. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Uh, we're just trying to represent people who've been injured through no fault of their own. We're trying to talk to them before they talk to an adjuster or before they take a settlement that isn't something they should get based upon their injuries. How many people are out there in different, not in the law business, that love to run around scaring people before you even get to them? Well, adjusters will want to settle cases right. and they want to close files. So based upon that, they do what they have to. Um, I think there's a lot of circumstances where they probably act as attorneys where they're not attorneys and they try yeah. to explain people's rights or they give them a certain view that if they look at it. And what I always say is this, if the adjuster really truly thinks the offer they made makes sense, they'd have them come see us. You know, And that's exactly my my question is, you have to understand who has the best, your best interest in mind, correct? Well, you want to know what your rights are. You know, whether yep. or not you decide yep. you're going to hire us or not, that's a choice. It's a free consultation, and you want to understand what your, all your rights are and what coverages you have. And plus the fact, I hang out with you, so you got to be a good guy <laughs> if I'm hanging out with you. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Tommy, do you guys read a lot of poetry on the queue? You mean like, there once was a man from Nantucket? No, more like T.S. Eliot. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Dougie, what's wrong? You a little sad? No, other than the weather, nothing's wrong. In fact, in the Walzer world, Coon Rapids and Burnsville finished number one and two in the state of Minnesota. J.Lo finally beat Dan Resch. Wow, that's pretty cool. Is it okay if I take all the credit? Well, I'd expect nothing less. Actually, we've got great inventory of some great vehicles, and these short-term leases are perfect for people who can't get the brands that they want. You told me about those. You can drive a new Nissan for as little as 18 months, and by then the chips will be aplenty. That's it exactly. We hope by then you'll be a Walzer Nissan convert. For great deals from the Minnesota sales leaders, go to Burnsville or Coon Rapids Nissan. Hey, this is Brian Zepp. Summer is finally here, and if you're like me, you've got some serious riding planned. Make sure you and your motorcycle are good to go with Dennis Kirk. Whatever you ride, Harley, Indian, Metric Cruiser, or Sport Bike, you'll find what you need at Dennis Kirk. 160,000 parts and accessories in stock, clothing and helmets, too. Order before 8 p.m., and they ship the same day. Plus, shipping is free for orders over 89 bucks. Follow Zepp's lead and head to DennisKirk.com. They ship today. Rocking out. Andy is rocking out, ladies and gentlemen. He's ready to meet the uh, week head on. My it's, word. It's ready to rage, hey, ladies man. and gentlemen. It feels like Lady we Hollywood. Have, as Andy always there is ready you go. to rage. Mm-hmm. The last boss of Brighton, ladies and gentlemen, Douglas Sencher, our very special guest. How are you doing, Douglas? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you on, yeah. believe me. As soon as you said Brighton Beach, I'm like, it's got to be Russians. <laughs> it's the Russians. Well, that's a nice touch. Right, isn't it? It's Russian. Yep. <laughs> yes. Lots of smoked meat and lots of I did uh, lots of times on the boardwalk having shots of vodka and having some some real authentic Russian food while I was writing this book and also going to the banyas. They love going to there. Spend three three hours sweating out the vodka in these you know two hundred degree saunas. Oh. Part of their culture. 
I like to clarify, it's Russian-speaking, but a lot of the people came from Ukraine. They're really Soviet emigrate Jews. They were, they, were, they were Jewish people like my family. My family came out earlier from Russia, but uh, before, before all this happened, before communism. But these are the guys who actually lived in Ukraine, Moldova, you know, some Russia, but a little Odessa, because it really was a reminder of Odessa, which was the pearl on the sea, and they, they lived right. in a little world there. Largely, largely wonderful, but like 500 hardened criminals were guys like Boris Mayfield out of the 40,000, and they really were hardened by the Soviet times. So it's a fascinating portrait of a world that's colorful, unique, a moment in time that is really like a throwback to when the first immigrants came over and, and made their own, you know, like once upon a time in America. <laughs> I always look at it like, well, this was that again in the 90s, 80s right. and 90s, you know? You know, Douglas, it's amazing to me looking at this because uh, whether it's Russians or Ukrainians or wherever, you know, Eastern you know, Europe, all of Western Europe, the Italians, the Scots, the British, um, of course, uh, Jews, as you already brought up. In my neighborhood when I was a, a little boy, a guy named Kid Can was the head of the, uh, the, they called it the Jewish Mafia when I was a kid. Why is it so easy? Yep. To, to, to commit crime in America. They all come here to commit their crimes. What's that all about? <laughs> well, in the case, I mean, we can all, we can, we can talk about different ethnic groups. I mean, it, it was the way for the earliest generation, in my ethnic group, the Jews, you know, the, the, the famous Meyer Lansky, but there were lots of rough and tumble guys, Lepke, right. and they, they clawed their way from, from, from the Lower East Side, from poverty, when you have nothing. Uh, most people, you know, go the honest way, like my family did. They worked, my grandfather worked on the docks in Brooklyn. My other grandfather was a furrier. And they, and then they find their way through education. There's always somebody who wants to do a shortcut. And, uh, yep, yep. with the case of Boris and the guys like him, they were shaped by the Soviet Union. And you have to realize, so he, he was, Boris was born in 47, right after the Soviet Union had lost 20 million people. And when he was born, his dad was in a gulag for black marketeering, which was essentially, it was called speculation. All he did was really sell stuff at a profit. Shoes, clothes, <laughs> and that's got you seven years, right? Uh -oh. business. <laughs> so then, <laughs> you know, Boris goes, today that's not, that's not a crime, it's all business. But in the Soviet times, it was speculation. And so the Soviet Union at that time, Boris actually went to a, it's not, it's not fair to say a gulag, he went to a zone, a work camp at age 18. Mm -hmm. So he did time in three years in a Soviet prison. And once guys had done time in a Soviet prison, they were professional criminals. It was hard to get a regular job anymore. So then he went off to make, like, no-show job money, which was stealing from the state. And once you were stealing from the state in an excessive amount, you were looking at the death penalty by firing squad. So he'd always, you know, he was just a flashy young guy, had the fur coat. You can see the pictures in the book. And way more money than he could prove he, he was entitled to have. So he'd get stopped by these special units of the cops, which were militia, saying, you know, can I have your driver's license? <laughs> and pretty soon it would be like, you do. You had, you had to send your friend to show up with a bottle of cognac and some chocolate. Because <laughs> you really couldn't bribe cops with money. And then, oh, you're free to go now. Boris Mikhailovich, you can leave. But anyway, so he, you know, he, uh, he was looking at the death penalty. The Soviets started to let Jews out in the 70s. Uh, as people remember, a lot of the, finally they started to let waves of Jews out. Most were law-abiding people, and they were very highly educated. A lot of them were engineers. And when I moved to New York City, we all remember talking to some cab driver when there were yellow cabs, you know, before Uber and saying, what did you do in the Soviet Union? Oh, I, I am a nuclear engineer. Here I drive taxi, right? They were just extremely educated, 
And a lot of those guys, law enforcement was freaked out because the FBI was like, wow, these guys are university educated, have been to prison. And Boris always said to me, once he did, like, he did three stints in, in federal prison in the U.S. And he said, Doug, to compare the Soviet prison system to the U.S., it's, it's, hell, it's hell versus paradise. Like, in, in, the, in a Soviet prison, we were worried about how many calories we got to, to not starve to death mm-hmm. and being worked to death. And, and he says, I got to MCC or I got to uh, Englewood, Colorado. Who gets to control the color TV? Are there, are there, are, is the weight equipment new? It's like, you know, <laughs> where do we play bocce ball today? He said, I couldn't. He went out to, he, he, as a 67-year-old man, he went out to Florence, Colorado for money laundering. Sorry, not Florence, that's worse, uh, Englewood. And he said, oh, I learned yoga. I learned to crochet. I was like, huh? I love it. I mean, the guy never ceases to have, but um, it's, it's kind of just to speak not just about Boris, but yeah, you had guys who had done really hard time, very ruthless, and they partnered with the Italian-American organized crime in the gasoline tax scam, mm-hmm. and some other scams, very lucrative, uh, but they were never afraid of the Italians. And Boris had a couple funny sit-downs where he, uh, you know, some Italian guy, it was a shakedown of a business, they had to have a meeting in Bensonhurst, and the Italian guy came and said, Boris, I knew your boss. He was a really good guy. This is a made member of one of the families. And Boris says, you here to talk to me or my boss? Because my boss, he says, has been dead for a long time. He's in the cemetery. You want to talk to him, go there. And they got into it back and forth, and then Boris said, do you want to go to war? you want to go to war? Boris, relax. I don't want to go to war. So I said, Boris, why would you, like with the Italian crime family, why did, why did you have no fear? And he said, you know what? Because we have nothing to lose. But right. Italians at this point, they have families and talk. They have businesses. They have legitimate construction. They have kids in college. I got nothing. So there was a kind of level, first of all, that they had nothing to lose and that they'd been to the prison system. So law enforcement always looked at it like, wow, if these guys aren't afraid of other criminals and they're not afraid of us, they're really not afraid of doing time in the U.S., it's a tough nut to crack. And uh, they figured out ways finally. But, you know, early on, law enforcement couldn't get anybody to talk because the Russians would really kill your whole family. I mean, they didn't have any of the rules that the Italians had about, right. you know, families are off limits. I mean, there's some stories in the book of guys involved in, you know, beef in Brighton Beach where, you know, everybody gets murdered in the family. And it's, it's just much more ruthless. It's not structured like the Italians. They really don't have that structure that the Italian crime families have. They have organization, but they're very fluid and they all work. It's different crime groups who choose to work together at different times, like amoebas. So I always I don't like the word Russian mafia because they don't have any of that structure. They have organized crime groups that come together to make money uh, based on um, mutual you know mutual advantage in a certain situation. But uh, Boris always said I never understood the Italians with their with their ranks like an army. No, we just had one leader and we all eat the same. He would say we all eat the same. Like if we do a job, we all split it up equally. So this is a really good insight. I mean, if people check out the book, you really understand how it works. And I don't think there's been anything written that really takes you inside the actual mind of how these guys think and also how their how their criminal organization is different from the Italian mafia, because there are big differences. Oh, God, no question. Douglas, I have to ask you a question, because we, we repeat this behavior in America, I'm sure certain other parts of the world, but in America, it's going on right now, as a matter of fact, not organized crime. But when you treat people like immigrants from Russia or Italy or wherever they came from, if you treat them poorly, 
uh, don't treat them as well as everyone else, you're, com- you're, you're causing a huge problem. Well, we're doing that again. We're, we're constantly yep. telling people cognitive dissonance is a big deal in America right now. We're constantly telling people uh, you're being held back, you're being treated poorly, uh, America's racist, America's horrible. All they're doing is inciting violence and crime. The, the exact same thing we did 100 years ago with all the organized crime figures out of the, the, the places you're talking about. When are we going to learn you can't make people, put people in a situation where they have nothing to lose or you're going to pay a big price for that, correct? That's true. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When people, the, 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 the most ruthless criminal of any, and I've written about the Italian mafia, outlaw bikers, the narco world, the guy who is the most dangerous is the guy who has nothing to lose and is not afraid of going to prison. That's who doesn't it. value his life at all. So it, it could be an 18-year-old gangbanger. It could be, you know, the, the rise in crime. I'm looking at, I look, read the, I read the tabloids in New York City every day. And, and you know, you just look at it. The rise of crime, it's, it's, it's the hopelessness and the, and the sense that a lot of these people have nothing to lose. So that's the scariest guy. And that's yep. during the prison system. It's during the streets. Um, well, you're asking a more societal question. You know, that's a big one. But it's the uh, same problem. With the Russians, it is the same problem. It's yep. true. With the Russians, I want to say something. They had a lot of choices, and and now the Soviets, a lot of the lot of the Russian Jew, Russian speaking Jewish guys, have become very successful. In America being legitimate, but they brought a gratuitous sense of hustling and beating the system. There's some there's some really funny passages in the book. I quote other writers saying, "Look at what's going on in Brighton Beach. You, you, anyone could buy a driver's license for a hundred bucks. You pay somebody. You could buy graduate degrees." There was um, one, a great criminolo- criminolo- criminologist who I quote in the book. She says, a lot of the immigrants brought patterns of beating the system and criminality that were gratuitous in the United States. They didn't need to do these anymore. But it was just ingrained in their, their way of like, well, let's hustle. Let's figure out a way that we can cheat the system. Cheat the system was a way to be anti-communist in the Soviet times. And they brought that same mentality to America. But I have to say, it's really, it is cognitive distance because almost all the, the Soviet Russian community, they loved, they love Trump. Uh, they love America. They're very, Boris is a U.S. citizen. He's, he's a big supporter of Trump. He's a, he's pretty, um, uh, racist about some ethnic groups. He's pretty blunt about that. And I look at it going, you know, you, you don't really make a lot of sense. Like, <laughs> you were an immigrant too. You were a hustler. You know, but if he applies that to other groups, he has he doesn't have a lot of sympathy. Um, so, uh, it's it's gangsterism is a very it's a very core uh, mythology in America. Without getting too yeah. off off topic, I mean, I was uh, I was talking to my mother. I was thinking there was a great film essay in 1948 by Robert Warshaw called the 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 gangster is tragic hero, and this was the era when you know Humphrey Bogart and Edward G. Robinson and the gangster film had kind of replaced the cowboy movie as, as America had become urbanized. And a lot of people were looking at the gangsters, whether you're talking about John Dillinger, the bank robbers, mm-hmm. or Al Capone, as kind of like a, a, a new symbol of American striving, you know? And so I often say, well, gangster, gangsterism is kind of core to what America, it, you know, it's not the Daniel, you know, the, the Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, outlaw, or, you know, Jesse James. It's more the... the Al Capone, John Gotti, like these are the guys that are seen as, you know, uh, beating the system and and taking on America. And, you know, we could we could go on to that. Michael Francesi, a friend of mine who gave you some quotes, he he, he has a book out called Mafia a Mafia Demar- Democracy, right? He's kind of calling America a mafia country. <laughs> you know, um, and Vladimir Putin, I might write an off-ed about this, by the way. Vladimir Putin is the biggest gangster in history. 
I mean, he really yeah. is a ma- yeah. he acts like a mafia boss, behaves like a mafia boss. He had the same kind of upbringing as Boris. They were they were hooligans. The word hooligan in Russian street street thugs. So uh, he, you know, Vladimir Putin started up in knife fights and street fights in the streets of Leningrad, just as Boris did in, in Belarus. So I often I say, if you want to hear about the biggest organized crime in history, just look at Vladimir Putin. He's probably the richest gangster in the history of the world. <laughs> oh so, yeah, yeah. Um, he really is. I mean, yeah. it's billions and billions and billions in. He's, Elon Musk was asked this in an interview saying, you know, how does it feel to be the richest man in the world? He goes, Vladimir Putin has much more money than I do. <laughs> it's you know, true. Things people, you know. No, and, and I say, I make this analogy several times in the book to, between Boris and what Vladimir Putin's Russia is, because Putin rose up as a deputy mayor, deputy to the mayor of St. Petersburg, you know, communism was falling apart. And Putin's partner was a very infamous organized crime figure who they called, his name was Kumarin, Kum. They called him the night governor because Putin ran the city in the day and, and, the, and, the, and the mob guys ran it at night, but they shared the money. So you really have to look at the, you know, the totality of this. Boris is just, to me, um, a representative of, I use him as an example in many cases, but I think you make a really good point about the U.S. and I, you know, I broaden it to other countries too, I I, I think the U.S. Is, is less of a mafia country than than uh, the, the former USSR. Oh yeah, yeah. There's no That's question. That's a gangster nation. Yeah, no doubt about it. I just uh, people better be very, very careful. Uh, we're we're headed in a really, really bad direction right now, and this is all about about organized crime because once again, if I've got nothing to lose, and I can become a big shot in my own community, now all of a sudden a big shot. I got nothing to lose. I may as well take this to the to the nth degree. And just go after everybody. I mean, it, it, we are creating a huge problem with this in America right now, and they don't even know they're doing it. I, I just, I got something on my mind, Douglas, very quick. Yep. You said you're a nice Jewish boy in America today. Is that what you said? <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm nice. I, I was raised to be nice, yes, yes. You were raised to be nice. From okay. a good family. Went to university, went to Princeton, and, and so I'm not a gangster. But I am fascinated by that, that antisocial, what creates an antisocial personality that is so destructive to society? That's, that's a question I'm very interested in. And why do we romanticize them? Because if you're going to make, if you're going to take Boris Hayfield and say, well, he's, he's scum of the earth, or, well, why did everybody love watching Tony Soprano when he was really the most unsavory, hideous man in the whole show? Right. You still kind of wanted to see him succeed, you know. Um, Sorry. So yeah, am I a nice Jewish boy? Yes, I was raised that. So I a nice, nice that. Jewish boy. For sure. Did you see the <laughs> the Anne Frank story that's out right now? I'm not making oh, this yeah, up. You mean about how she's raised by? Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know you if Andy and Alex yeah. saw this whole deal. Uh, there is a story out right now on Twitter. There's a big argument on Twitter right now whether Anne Frank had white uh, privilege. I know. I saw that. White privilege, this is a girl who died at 15 after suffering mightily her whole life. They even pick on her. Douglas, that's going to create some criminals. I'm telling you, we keep treating people like that. You're going to have some very hideous criminals come out. the monster the media created. Enjoy it. It is. You're absolutely right. The monster the media created. You're right. Well, I have to say, as a Jew, you know, I always tell people that my, uh, I used to write for a Jewish newspaper when I first started the forward newspaper. And, uh, there was a book published that I wrote about called How the Jews Became White Folks. So when, when you know, when the Irish came right. over, they were not considered white. Right. No, and Jews were not considered white. My grandparents all came through Ellis Island, and on their race, they ate Hebrew. We were the Hebrew race, right? So 
I often say, well, you want to call us white? Yeah, I guess we've become white. But Hitler didn't consider us white. No. Nope. And the neo-Nazis out in Idaho and everything, they actually, they hate black people. They hate, they hate the mud people. But the Jews are worse to the Aryan nations because we are the spawn of the devil. Right. Like, we're literally not human. We are devil devil. So, yeah, I mean, so to, to call her having white privilege is, that's, I'm sorry, that's nauseating to me. Because yeah. Because if you know anything about the Holocaust, uh, yeah. Jews were Jews and the Romani people. We were a different ethnicity to them and not and definitely not considered white. So no, I it's... actually didn't know that, and that makes me that makes me kind of upset. Oh, you can <laughs> yeah, check it out. It should uh, make you upset. So. Yes. Douglas, there's a big article on TMZ.com about it. They're covering it. And, and this, I thought it was fake because I do a morning show in town already, and before I went on the air with that, I did my research because I thought there's no way this can be true that somebody thought that Anne Frank had white privilege. You think Twitter being racist sociopaths yeah. is fake? Well, Why? no. Yeah. <laughs> Are you familiar with Twitter? <laughs> That's a, no, I don't go on Twitter. I don't go on no, any of those things anymore. Wise policy. <laughs> yeah. But but Douglas, exactly well, what you're I, talking I, about. With honestly, bo- I come from a pretty, uh, oh, I was going to say I came from a pretty uh, left of center Jewish American family from uh, uh, Brooklyn and Chicago. And, you know, the civil rights, my dad at the University of Illinois uh, back in 48 was uh, Champaign-Urbana was still, there was still set, de facto segregation. So my dad was part of a group, you know, Jewish guys and a few, a few of the African-American students, and they'd go sit at lunch counters, and if the guys weren't served, they would file legal complaints. So they were trying to desegregate. Right. Jews worked really hand-in-hand. Hand. I mean, a lot of, uh, we were very, very closely allied with the civil rights uh, movement, and until the sort of nation of, of Islam and all that stuff divided us. Jews and blacks were actually uh, one of the greatest uh, partnerships mm-hmm. in, in American ethnic history. You know, Gershwin and Jazz, and there's, there's so many great stories about Jews and blacks working together. Unfortunately, it's become an extremely strained relationship. But, um, yeah, well, anybody that considers Jews, you know, having white privilege, I, I ask them to do a little historical research. Yeah, it might not be a bad <laughs> idea. thousands of years before this. Douglas, I have to read this paragraph. Yeah. Born in the Soviet area, uh, Soviet era Belarus, abandoned by his parents in infancy. A big part of this, by the way, once again, abandoned by his parents. That's always a huge thing. Is it? Did you pronounce, does he pronounce it Biba or Biba? Biba, it, which is a nonsense. It's just a name that, if you look at the picture, look, there was a there was a few photos. He had really round cheeks and bright blue eyes, oh. and they he just they just made up a name like you look like a little doll. But then by the end, he's all padded up in one of the scariest guys. You've ever. So I look at this. How does this little cherubic <laughs> little baby, <laughs> you look like a doll, a toy doll, become this scary? And that's the story of this book. Like, how did he become that? So I'm sorry. Continue reading the paragraph. Oh, that's a great paragraph. Up. So I'll start over again. Born in uh, Soviet era, uh, Belarus, abandoned by his parents in embassy. Biba's brutal upbringing left him hungry for more. Again, a brutal upbringing bringing left him with nothing, left him hungry for more, more power, control, and money because he had none, taking advantage of the uh, rampant corruption in the Soviet Union. Biba's teenage hooliganism quickly turned into bolder black cash rackets. It's exactly what we're talking about. That mom and dad didn't support me. Yep. I had I either didn't have mom or I had dad. In this case, he didn't have either. All of a sudden, uh, he's the wrong kind of guy. Oh, you're an immigrant. That's not good. We can't have that. Well, you left him with nothing. So what's he going to do? He's going to do anything he can to get something. Why we keep teaching people that lesson, That's I true. don't understand. But, you know, there's a, a very big argument. I, you know, when you do these book things, you're not supposed to give away too much in the book. Yeah. But Boris has a brother who's only 11 months. They have the same biology, exact same parents. They have the same 
same dysfunctional childhood. And yet his brother, coming to America, never broke a law and worked hard. He's now retired on Staten Island and, you know, had never had to watch over his back for people that he hurt. And, and you know, I think there are, there are, you're right about the societal things, but I also think there's some genetic components. Yeah. Divorce by, by, by any standard is sociopathic, antisocial, whatever the, right. the current term is. And yet, I, I often wonder, are there not, maybe 10 years from now we'll have a clearer sense of, like, there are genetic predispositions that if you put people who have this kind of wiring in their in their neurotransmitters or whatever, if you put them into a rough-and-tumble situation where they have to survive, they are going to become absolutely ruthless. But uh, Boris often will say, I didn't have choices, I had to survive, and I said, okay, but why did your brother not break the law? Like, you just wanted it fast. The thing about him is he's, he's hardwired to be impatient, so he didn't want to do language classes. You know, they gave them free language classes in Albany, the Jewish Community Center. He goes, I was bored by that, so I started stealing from supermarkets. <laughs> That's one of the things they saw in America, by the way. I thought it was, a, I thought it was, I thought it was funny. Like I, I say, I said, what was the first thing you learned in America? He said, well, the Jewish community was taking care of us. They were giving us language lessons. But after school, I would go to the supermarket, and that was the first every Soviet era person tells you. It was like a revelation to see an American supermarket because they really had, you know, one kind of meat. You know, you'd stand in line for meat. You'd have right, one one right. kind of soap called soap. You know, here he's like 50 kinds of soap, 100 kinds of cereal, you know, how many different kinds of ice cream? And then Boris said, but the thing I learned was, like, and a lot of immigrants said, it's, it's everything they told us about the West and the communist system was a lie. It really is a land of plenty, and they really have all this stuff. And Boris said, yeah, but I, I learned a different lesson. It's so easy to steal. You go into the supermarket, this was before cameras, he goes, I would have my school books. I would maybe buy two apples, but under all my school books, I would take, like, all these groceries and walk out of the store. Nobody's watching me. Nobody's chasing me. And I said, so your lesson of America was it's so easy to steal here. Wow. It's a different lesson than most people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Freedom. God, that, that is amazing. But, yeah, I mean, these are, uh, these are conditions. Uh, yeah, when you put a person who has really uh, had a dysfunctional childhood, uh, his mother tried by the time his mother came back into his life she left him at three and he was already so rough that no one could really control him and i you know i see this pattern with a lot of these criminal guys it's sort of like certain things shape them at a very young age and then i would ask for us well why didn't you you know try to make a, a go of it like he was enrolled in a culinary school of all things to become a cook oh and i was like yeah you know what you're actually pretty he made me <laughs> he made me pancakes. He made me do like Russian pancakes at his house in Staten Island. I was like, "How did you learn to cook?" Because oh, I was in a culinary. <laughs> um, but he told me in once you went to a a Russian prison. I mean, it was just it's scary the scenes in the Russian prison. He said, "You know, you learn from other criminals how to become a." He called it being a professional criminal. Mm-hmm. And I, all I wanted to be was a better, a more professional criminal. He said, "I never saw a person who came out of one of those Soviet prisons who was reformed. You couldn't become better in a place like that." Mm-hmm. So I think that there's, you know, I don't ever like to make apologies for people's bad behavior because I do I do think you always have choices. Even as bad a lot as a lot of people have had, they still have choices. And not not everybody makes the same bad choices, right? So, you know, I think that's one of the questions I was trying to answer in this book, like nature and nurture, environmental factors versus biological factors. Right. Because uh, some of these guys, when you look at the Sammy the Bulls or the, you know, these, these mafia hitmen, and you just go, whoa. You know, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do all these things you did. You obviously just don't have a conscience. But, uh, 
There's a very funny scene in the book where Boris, you know, you still had to serve in the Soviet army, even though it was peacetime. And he came out of the, he, he was a good sportsman. Like, he was good enough to go to the Olympics in his rowing. Really? really? He's a rowing, uh, so he, he yeah, he actually he is a very strong guy. So he got, he said, I was, I thought I was going to go into a Soviet uh, sports company, like a sports unit. And, you know, all those guys did, the hockey players, the boxers, they just, they wore the Red Army uniform, but they just trained. But anyway, instead he went to the, to, to the work camp. And once he came out of there, he was like, well, I'm not serving in the Soviet Army. So he tells me, but in the prison, I learned the best way to get out of the Soviet Army was to, to get Article 7B, soci- uh, psychopath, psychopathy. So I said, so what do you mean? Goes, so I studied in a book all the symptoms of how to be a psychopath. And when I came to the Army doctor, I, I put on all these symptoms. And he said, <laughs> you're a psychopath. We, we can't let a person like you carry a gun. And I said... I let him tell that story, but then in the book I said, of course, there's another possibility, which is that the, the Army just diagnosed him as a psychopath. Right. Uh, but, you know, these, these are dodges. These were famous dodges. People would say, you know, go to the mental hospital for two weeks and you won't have to be in the Army. Just act like a... Uh, but, you know, <laughs> Boris has all the traits of the classic antisocial personality, meaning I don't think he has any regrets or any conscience about any of the bad things he's done. Or at least he claims not to have any regrets. But yet, when he was in Colorado, doing he he had, he had to get uh, all these prison tasks. He said, "I have to get these tattoos." So he goes to the Lubavitch rabbi who would come out there, and he gets written in Hebrew, uh, "God forgive me, Hashem forgive me," and he has a huge tattoo in Hebrew on his belly that, if you can read Hebrew, that says, "God forgive me," with a Torah. And, and I said, "Wait, why did you? You don't have any regrets. Why did you get God forgive me tattooed on your stomach?" And he goes. Well, of course I have to ask God for forgiveness. I have so many sins. <laughs> and I said, man, you are really a contradiction. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> you have no regrets. But you, you said you needed that tattoo? I'm sorry, my mother cracked up when I read, read that part, because, of course, Jews are not supposed to get tattoos at all, right? So, right. But he right. needs this Jewish tattoo most of all to ask Hashem, God, for forgiveness for his life of sins. But a very complicated, unsavory guy in many ways, but also fascinating. And I, I, I like to write about fascinating people. My daughter, who's 19, says, he's an anti-hero. And I said, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you've done your literary reading. Right, he's really the anti-hero. He's not a, 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 like Raskolnikov or other, other famous characters in literature who are not good people, but they're still very interesting. Why did they do the things they did, right? No, I did no That's question. That's what interests me as a writer, by the way. Well, Douglas, you got my brain just spinning because of all the things you're bringing. I grew up in a... In a uh, Catholic, black, and Jewish neighborhood in North Minneapolis, which, by the way, they put the freeway around so he couldn't get out, which was rather interesting, but (laughs) it's not the only place it ever happened. But all the things you're talking about, I look back at my childhood and go, God, he's right. You were right on the money with your read on all this stuff. Um, One of the things that popped into my head while you were talking, Douglas, was I had a couple of friends when I was a younger man, not a kid, but a younger man. There were two brothers in the family, okay? A nice Catholic family. And uh, one of the brothers became the chief of police, and the other brother is in prison for the rest of his life. <laughs> so there you go. Yep. I mean, it's the same brain, but um, functioning in a different manner. Well, I actually, when I when I get to the end of the book and I'm talking about Boris's brother, Gena, Gennady, mm-hmm. and how, wow, he, he lived his life. And then I, I contrasted, I said, well, that's, Kind of the story of the Jews, Jewish organized crime. There was always one black sheep, like uh, Louis Lefke Bookhalter, yeah, who yeah. was you know the only mob boss, that, you know, in Sing Sing got the electorate, head of Murder Incorporated, you know, ran all the all the labor racketeer, biggest labor racketeer. 
But you know, his brothers. He had a he had a you know blood brothers. He had a blood brother who was a pharmacist. He had a blood brother who was a, a dentist. <laughs> he had a half brother who was one of the most famous rabbis. And I say, so Boris's family is really just like the story of of all the the earlier wave of Jewish organized yep. criminal, which was. You know, there was one black sheep in the family. Like, even Meyer Lansky sent his son to West Point. You know, um, uh-huh. Jews never really, there was no there was no status in, in Jewish culture to being a gangster. It really was, you were seen as a, a ganef and a, the Yiddish word is starker, like a, a The a starker, group. yeah. But, yeah, starker were the, yeah, the guys who broke heads on the labor, mm-hmm. you know, they, they would be the, the strike breakers and stuff. But yeah, in, in the Jewish organized crime world, it's always interesting, because there's very rarely brothers who are, like, it's usually one brother went to the dentistry and was like, are you kidding me? And the other guy's got the electric chair. Wow. How do you account for that? <laughs> well, that's a um, good call. That and is you know, but Italian, the Italian culture is a little, a little different because a lot of guys would have, you know, a very famous story, Chin Giganti. I don't know if you know that. Chin Giganti was sure. really the power when he was walking around with the bathrobe and, uh, John Gotti had his son made. When once you're made in the Italian mafia, the FBI's got you on a chart. So the Chin sons, and he had a bunch of sons, they worked in the waterfront, but they were never made guys. They, they were involved in the racket, but they never were made. And at one point, John and, and the Chin had a, they had a last commission meeting, I think, and John said, you know, my son is straightened out. I had, I had my son uh, made. And Chin says, I'm really sorry for you. Like, I'm sorry for your loss. Ooh. Meaning you put your son with a target on his head now. Yeah, very yeah, true. That's the famous story that the FBI has in many files. Because you wouldn't want your kid if you've lived this life because you had no choice. Why would you want your kids to have that? You know, it's it's not a happy life. There are Michael Friend says he was a really smart guy, got out of that life, became a born again Christian. He says to me, one thing he gave me a blurb. He said, one thing Douglas gets right: no matter if you're Italian, American, Russian, there are no happy endings if you choose to be part of that life. You're going to prison for the rest of your life. You're ending up murdered, or you're dying broke. There really are no no happy endings for a gangster. It's it's extremely rare. No, that's but very I, true. you know even in Minneapolis, I guess you, you saw it you saw it firsthand in any any urban center. Mm-hmm. We're going to have especially among ethnic ethnic groups. There's always going to be ethnic crime. You know, there's the ways of newcomers are always going to find ways to try to get ahead quickly. Well, the way yeah, I, I look at it. Yeah, and, plus the fact you're holding them down and holding them back, so they're going to try even harder. Yep. And, you know, people will say, I had a few critiques saying, why do you glorify a guy who was extorting his own neighborhood? Or, Which is what they always did, the black hand Sicilian. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Boris, in his neighborhood in, in the Soviet times, they had a gang, and, you know, they would fight the anti-Semites. Almost every one of these groups, when you talk about the Italians, you talk about the Irish, yeah, they would extort their own businesses. You have to pay us protection. Or else, you know, you get a Molotov cocktail coming through your window. Jewish Lightning or whatever they call it. Oh, Jewish Lightning. Yeah, heard the, that. Yeah. But a lot of times they would also protect the neighborhood. You know, they would actually protect the neighborhood. So it's a conflicting thing. It's a conflicting emotion for a lot of people because we want to criticize them for being parasites on their communities. But on the other hand, were they not also defenders in some ways? Uh, you know, Meyer Lansky... My family in Chicago would tell these stories. A lot of the, the gangsters in Chicago, they beat the crap out of the German-American Bund mm-hmm. whenever the Bund would have these rallies. I think there's a, there's a book about it out now, you know, na- Jewish gangsters against the Nazis. But if you grew up Jewish, you heard these stories that, you know, the Bund was very, very powerful in America. They had rallies at Madison Square Garden, pro-Hitler, and uh, 
Yeah. They weren't doing anything illegal in terms of free speech. So some of the rabbis came to guys like Myrlansky and said, can you beat, you know, don't kill them, but, you know, beat the crap out of them. And there were a few, like in Yorkville in New York, in parts of Chicago, they, the Jewish criminals, really got in it with some very bad characters. So, I don't know. You know, I always look at both sides of the coin and I say, are they, are they good people? I don't really like that simplistic duality of good and evil because right. I don't think anybody really is. Even the worst person has some interesting traits, generally. Um, but, you know, this is like a world where Donald Trump, I'm sorry, behaved and so did Vladimir. In many of the, his characteristics were those of a mob boss. Yeah, like, true. Well, it's true. Clever yeah. way. Don't, don't put anything in writing. Like, he never, I always say, Donald Trump never writes emails. And, well, I mean, this, it's like, you know, mafia guys learned that early on. Don't, you know, go walk, do it all on walk and talk, right? Yeah. If you're going to have a conversation, walk around. Ne- never believe that your phone is safe. Never believe that you're, uh, like, Boris and these guys, they would always have meetings in the in the steam rooms, you know? Right. Think quiet. Right. The famous one of these 10th century. You know you know why? Because you're naked and there's steam. <laughs> who's who's wearing a bug? You're, you're literally sitting there with no clothes on. No, it's very so, true. You know, these, these, are, these are savvy people who know that the government is always listening. That's one another another characteristic of them. They're they're uh, I think they're pretty much one step ahead of law enforcement most of the time. Douglas, and, uh, it's Douglas, I will close with a great memory you just gave me. Well, I don't know about a great memory, but uh, you gave me a lot of memories today, Douglas. And one of them was uh, in the early 80s, Catherine and I lived in New York. I was doing a lot of voiceover out there, and we lived in New York. And I used to see Vincent the Chin Gigante walking around in his bathrobe every day. <laughs> I will never. Remember, he yeah. used to walk around in his bathrobe all the time? Oh, he, yeah. And he. He put on his crazy act. Oh yeah. He, oh, yeah. he was smart enough to make fat, fat Tony Salerno up in East Harlem was the boss that the FBI thought. But Chin was always the boss. And yeah. he would do stuff like they, they came to it. It was his mother's apartment in, in Greenwich Village. He would walk around in his bathroom, but one time they knocked on the door and he was standing in the, uh, what, in the shower uh, under an umbrella. Yeah, you know, but you know, it there came out of this trial. <laughs> it came out of this trial. They had they had testimony of saying, yeah, but as soon as he was in a private room, he was, you know, he was he, he was he. I think he ended up admitting that he was acting crazy. But yeah, you, know, you were in New York for that famous era where you see him in his bathroom looking like a hunched over little man, and uh, but secretly he was the power. No, no question. Know? And about John Gotti would say, look at. Is it? I think John Gotti said something like, "Is it worth it?" Like John Gotti was the opposite. He wanted to be seen on the cover of Time magazine mm-hmm. in his great yellow suits, and he goes, "Look at the chin walking around like a bum. Like you can't even enjoy it." But you know, these are the strategies people have. Like, do you act like a gangster, or do you try to beat the government by acting like a? What did they call him? The Odd Father. Yeah, the Odd Father. That's right. It was the Odd Father, right? <laughs> Douglas Century, C E N T U R Y. The book is called The Last Boss of Brighton, Boris Biba Neifeld, and the Rise of the Russian Mob in America. Douglas, a fantastic and fascinating story. You gave me a lot of a lot of memories. Some of them good, some of them not so good. Douglas, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I hope the good ones outweigh the bad ones. They did indeed. Uh, thank they you did. guys for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's I really great appreciate time. it. Hope people will check out the book. They will get it done. Thank you, Douglas. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you guys so much. We'll take a break. Be right back in a couple of minutes with the family. Dan Chesky's here from Dan's Southside Marine. It won't be long now until we start seeing boats on the water. Warmer temps and open water are coming soon, Tom. 
We have inventory in stock now from Alumacraft, Premier, Avalon, and Manitou with more arriving daily. What's the secret to finding a boat you're looking for this year, Dan? My recommendation is to shop now, pick a model, put your name on it. Our team of pros at Dan Southside Marine will have the knowledge and experience to get the boat you want equipped the way you want it equipped. What about financing options? Right now, we are offering low-interest financing options up to 144 months with qualified credit. Ask for details when you visit the store. Alumacraft Fishing Boats, Premier, Avalon, and Manitou Pontoons, all powered by Suzuki Outboards, are in stock now with new boats arriving daily. Dan Southside Marine is located just six blocks west of 35W on 98th Street in Bloomington, or shop online at dansouthsidemarine.com. Tom Bernard talking with Brad Huckle and Michael Bilski of North American Banking Company. We've talked a few times over the years about how North American Banking Company has helped local businesses when they're ready for expansion. We love talking about the success of our customers. One example is suburban manufacturing in Monticello. They create innovative products that produce clean, dry air that is needed during the manufacturing process. We recently helped them expand their business. Moving into a new building gave them the space they needed to add new equipment and production lines. We were able to step in quickly and provide the financing they needed when they needed it. When we help businesses like Suburban Manufacturing with their expansion, it's beneficial for our customers, but their growth also creates new jobs in our community. So they make stuff that produces clean, dry air for manufacturing after working with Bilski. Do they breathe easier with their business felt? We certainly hope so, Tommy, and that's no hot air. Nice one. Why not bank with my banker? North American Banking Company, a better banking experience, member FDIC, and equal housing lender. You all have helped build my pillow into the incredible company it is today and have trusted in Mike Lindell to give you a great night's sleep. Mike's latest incredible deal is on the Giza Dream Sheets, which you've heard me rave about before, that's for sure. These sheets are made from the world's best cotton, Giza. They are ultra soft and breathable, yet extremely durable. Right now, the Giza Dream Sheets at its lowest price ever. These sheets are 60% off, coming in as low as $39.99 with promo code TOM. Doobie doo. Oh, doobie wah, excuse me. I thought it was doobie wah. Fatal mistake. I have so many things I want to talk about. You really? Do? Well, let me read this quickly, and we, we've only got about 10 minutes left in this hour, but we got the entire second hour out. Well, we could go back to the Anne Frank thing. I do want to go back to the Anne Frank thing. I'll read That's... the story, and then you can take over, okay? Well, I don't want you to take over. I just, I have thoughts. You should take over. Take over the whole. <laughs> We're changing the show, everybody. This is from um, TMZ. <clears throat> it's, it's been covered on a number of different news sites. Twitter is yet again proving it's the worst for bulk bad takes. 100%. This time debating whether Anne Frank, who was hunted and killed by Nazis, had white privilege when she was alive. This is, an, this is not fake. I thought it was fake when I first saw it posted. Well, it's prudent to not think that anything's real on the internet for, yeah. a, Good idea. And, and for at least five days. And like check five, <clears throat> check <throat> six sources before you mm, wait five days. You might have noticed that the late, <laughs> ho, late Holocaust victim was trending on Saturday, but finding out why is disheartening. Some, it seems, have floated an argument that Frank benefited from white privilege in Nazi Germany. Did she? she was not Did considered she? white in Nazi Germany, as Douglas just pointed out. But there's... Well, like I said, this is the monster you guys created. It's Have true. fun with it. Well, no, it's true. Well, so it's enjoy. also interesting how you know, when we were talking to our previous guest about the Russians, they came and they were treated poorly, and then they treated or thought right. of people right. poorly. That's what 
that's just how people do it. They it dehumanize the other group, and then it feels yep. it's like if it's a free-for-all, then you can do whatever you want. You know, the nation of Liberia in Africa, it was the nation that slaves were sent to to be free. It was like their own nation that they, I think America, like, basically granted it to them. Oh. And one of the first things they did was legalize slavery. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. <laughs> It's, it's unbelievable. Anyone who gets any power will instantly become corrupt. You're there right. is no morals involved. Way. It's You're all right. about power. Yep. Right. And the money from the power. <clears throat> well, of course. Well, that well, follows. Power yeah. is just, or money is just a projection of power. It is, absolutely. Ultimately. Well, there's, okay, so I read this book. It's well, fiction. Let me just, let me oh, just finish this. Okay, okay. I just only got a couple more lines. Oh, it's the stroke. Yeah. Um, seems have floated an argument that Frank benefited from white privilege in Nazi Germany, an argument that is rightly being shot down left and right. Yeah, oh, I would imagine. Oh, here's a post by some prick named <laughs> QOD. QOD. Yeah, sounds capital like his real Q-U, name. Yeah. Capital O-D. Quote, quote. I love their burritos. Yeah, I was really just going to say, Kadoba? Kadoba? <laughs> okay, here's what he posted. Hold on, I want to make sure I say this carefully. Yeah, and Frank had white privilege. Bad things happen to people with white privilege also, but don't tell the white people that. Well, I mean, this is what they Jesus. were taught. They were taught yeah, that if I you agree. have white skin, then you have white privilege. Well, yep. Every college professor, everyone in the media, whoever spouted white privilege, this is what you deserve. I agree. I'm happy that no, this is except, happening it's to just, you. It's gotten to, skull, you know, to cult status now. It just is. 100% yeah, it cult is. status. They made a cult. They weaponized racism. You know, burn. Well, and the thing, okay, so I was going to say, I read this book called The Book of Lost Names, and it's fiction, but it's, like, based on um, people that forged documents for Jewish people to get to Switzerland during the Holocaust. And the story is, Mom gave it to me, and she hasn't read it yet, so I don't want to, like, say too much, but I mean. Don't just ruin it for me. It's fine. (laughs) <laughs> to spoil the entire thing. Way to go, Alex. Um, <laughs> Don't worry about it. But in the book, they talk about... Um, so it's a Jewish young woman that becomes a forager. And she lives in Paris. And she's been moved to Paris because her parents are like, this is a safe zone. Mm-hmm. And then, as we know, Sarah, Paris didn't become a safe zone. And so then she left Paris, became a forager. And she was, there's this whole thing in the book about how there are certain Jews that can pass as non-Jews. Sure. There are some Jews that you can, couldn't even go out anywhere in public because you look too Jewish. Mm-hmm. But then she's like, well, my mom was a Polish Jew, and so that makes me look less Jewish yeah. than other Jews, yes. you know, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so she talks about that a little bit in the book, which is obviously, even though it's a fiction book, something that's real yeah. in life. Um, so I, that's like what they're talking about, I think, in a way that it's like just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that you can't. Because a thing that I read, it's like she, even though she was Jewish, she still was white. And so she could have probably gone in the streets and been fine. It's like, no, <laughs> no. She literally hid in a closet or whatever that for how amazing. many? Well, this how is long the problem. She in there? When you pick and choose historical facts, yeah. to back up a faulty basis of thought. Mm, yep. Yeah. It's intellectually. Uh, what they're they act like they're intellectual, but they're not. They're just 
trying to keep some narrative going and well it's like it's like picking you know your religious your 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 religion and you decide that you don't like this part of the religion so it's mm-hmm. okay if i do this yeah it doesn't make any sense you can't call yourself something if you're not the whole thing you well, know what i'm saying not really though cuz there's a lot of people that i know that are jewish that aren't practicing i'm not Judaism. talking about practicing i'm talking about this whole you're just uh, talking about the culture yeah. of judaism no, than... no, I'm talking about the people that are now calling Anne Frank a person of white privilege. Because she was has white skin. <laughs> Unbelievable. It doesn't like make... I said, it's what they were taught. Yeah. Yep. Blame the people who trained them to be this way. Oh, I know, but I'm just saying that if everybody would just look at how it's being presented. Yeah. Like, like how does this, this this is carrying yeah. things Way like far. so far. If you if you believe in dragons, then you're gonna see dragons everywhere. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, that's just where we're at right now. We believe yeah. that this it's is like, something that is the most important thing in the whole wide world and that everybody is sitting there just you know, shaking and suffering, and if we all don't believe the same thing and do whatever they say, then we're torturing yeah. people of color. It's like they took the phrase, you took the color blue and made it a rainbow. Yeah. Like, that's what's happened here. Like, exactly. it started with, I think... Good intentions? I think a lot of people started it with good intentions, mm-hmm. and then now it's just turned into absolute mania. Yeah, well, my idea is that everybody should be treated well. And everybody should help those that want to be helped. If people don't want to be helped, then you really yeah, can't help anybody, yeah. including family members and everything else. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's there's true. only so much you there. can do with strangers. Yeah. You know, and there's only so much screaming and yelling at other people to make them feel bad that's going to work. Then it's just going to harbor resentment. Mm-hmm. That's just what happens. Yeah. And that's where we're at right now. Yeah. So this is... A really good example of what Andy's been talking about. You've got people so worried about a topic that they're willing to go this far with it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, it's insane. This is insanity. Yeah, it's, yeah, the fact that I don't. Well, this whole idea that just because your mm. your skin is one color, you're like everybody else, it's that color. That's insane. It is 100% insane. Well, I mean, yeah. people believe. Well, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's not racist, though, at all. Okay. They don't care that it's racist. No, they don't. They don't care that they're hypocrites. Every single person on this planet wants to think that their group of people is a little bit better than all the other groups of people. They want to think that. You're right. That's just what people do. I know. I just, it's just unbelievable to me. That's like evolution. No, there you go. Well, you know, you, you remember Neil Goldsmith, and we, we sat around the fire with him out there in Stouts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about his mother, Sandy Rosen, who grew up in my neighborhood right down right. the road from me. And she's about four or five years older than me, something like that. Um, she was basically right between my sister Bobby and my sister Vicky. She was right between them. And we were talking about this this whole thing, exactly what you guys are talking about. It just... It's amazing that that people get this idea of this is how it should be, and if it, that's the way it is, and that's it's just it's what Andy was saying. It's just they got exactly what they deserved. Yep. I know, and they're not letting up. No, they're not. That's the thing. It's like something something has to happen. Well, they brainwashed an entire three generations of people to they behave did. this way. You've and got I'm, another eighty years of this, 
enjoy. That's and that's our education system, is it? Yes, not? it is. It's a hundred percent. I'm not saying every teacher is that way, but our system is filthy. Yep. And it's all about money yet again. No, it's interesting. I the um, book that I gave you, the book of na- lost names. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> two school teachers that live in Florida and had been doing that for a very long time. They're the ones that recommended that book to me, and they opted out of being in the teachers union and they work with mostly um minority children who are very far behind like these two women just all they do is try to get them to be able to read right so they can get out of high school do enough math and Mm -hmm. do enough reading so they can get out they say they're they're like the teachers unions are not helping these children no, the teachers union just give them a D plus or whatever good enough and, yeah, and shove them out. They said it, it's a product of the home. Yes, it is. That there's been nobody ever has read to these kids. Nobody's ever helped them in any way, shape, or form. They're left alone all the time. They don't have any interaction with anybody. They're locked in their bedroom a lot of times when they're home mm-hmm. because their parents just don't want to deal with them. There's a lot of really, really shitty parents. And I shouldn't just say minorities. They work with everybody in that right. situation. Maybe I don't do, know why right. I said that. Probably because of my white privilege. But yeah, um, that's it. anyway, it just they are they're they were very interesting people, and they're just watching the school systems crumble. They're in Florida, so there's some that are still. Mm. But it, they're watching it happen in Florida too. Yep. Because the people that go into teaching are activists. Yeah, well, they care no more about, about the message a lot than actually of teaching. Couldn't agree yeah. more. Couldn't agree more. And again, go back to Neil for one second and Sandy Rosen. He said that his mother, and I've told you guys the same thing. Uh, our neighborhood was again Catholic, Black, and Jewish. We didn't have these problems. There were there were. We, you know, they had, I guess everybody had their own little area, but I don't remember people being savaged. I mean, there were fist fights and stuff like that, but there aren't anything. But doesn't matter, Catholic, black, Jewish, whatever. Nancy, uh, Nancy, nice. Uh, Sandy uh, Rosen said the same thing that there were not, we didn't have these problems treating one another poorly. But again, we were all, those three groups were not treated very well in Minnesota. Catholics in Minnesota used to be treated very badly, you know. I mean, back a hundred years ago, something like that, because they were not Protestant. This is a, this is a Protestant state. Yeah, much. very Scandinavian. But the Germans were the Catholic part of it, right? And, that, and that's where the you know that whole deal came in. Uh, God, we got to take a break here. That that went a little longer than it should have. But uh, I, th- I found that uh, Douglas is a very very interesting guy and great stories. And Andy and Alex, I like what what you also talked about in there. The fact that these people need to understand that uh, they're, they're going to get exactly what they asked for, and you are not going to like it. It ain't going to be pretty, right? You have to I vote in the midterms. So. There you go. All right, we'll be back in a few minutes. Got another hour coming up right after this.